Good morning, Chaldean. Can you hear me okay? Brilliant. It's really good to be back with you again. It seems ages since I was standing looking out at you all. I think the last time was before the dreaded COVID. That's how long ago it was. Hopefully, you're not all sitting there thinking, oh, no, not her again. I really hope not. Um, this morning, I wanted to start off by doing something just a wee bit different, if the technology works, just to get our grey cells working. So how about a little bit of a quiz? Behind me, we hope, we can see a... Oops, no, well, there's some pictures first. There's no pictures? I sent them through on the PowerPoint. No? Okay. We won't, by the wonders of technology, have that then. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's do something different then. Who here, hands up, has heard of Corrie Ten Boom? Fantastic. Who here has heard of Jeff Lucas? Brilliant. Who has heard of Justin Welby? Who is he? Brilliant. Who's heard of Mike Pilavacci? Yeah, few, few less hands raised there. Who's heard of Billy Graham? Okay. Who's heard of Frank Jenner? Oh, John, you had to let me down. Shh. Only John knows who Frank Jenner is. Don't spoil it. <laughs> really well done if you did know. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a little bit more about Frank Jenner in a bit. But first... Do you ever look around at other Christians and think, gosh, they are really good at being a Christian? Do you ever look around and think, they've got this Christian thing just sussed? They seem to have it all together, and they don't seem to have the same struggles that perhaps I do, or you do. They seem so sure of themselves. And I often wish I could be like them. There have even been some famous Christians out there now, you know, the, the superstars. And I think when you look at them, it can leave us feeling just a wee bit deflated and maybe a possibly bit inferior. Slightly different, do you ever look at well-thought-of Christian folk, people that spring to mind and think to yourself, if you only knew what they were like when they are not at church, when they're at home, or when they're at work? Hmm, I wonder. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Frank. He wasn't famous, or a charismatic individual, but he did live a very faithful and consistent life for God. His life came under the spotlight almost by accident, let me read to you what I found out about him. A number of years ago in a church in London, a stranger stood up and said, Pastor, can I share a little testimony with you? The pastor said, yep, no problem, you've got three minutes. This man proceeded to speak and he said, I've just moved into this area. I came from Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was walking down George Street when a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words. 
Nobody had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a Christian friend, and he led me to Christ, and now I am a Christian. Following on from that testimony, that same pastor flew to Adelaide the next week. A woman came to him for counselling, and he asked her if she was a Christian, and she said, I used to live in Sydney. A couple of months back, I was doing some last-minute shopping down George Street, and a strange little white-haired man offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? She said, I was disturbed by those words. So when I got back to Adelaide, I sought out a pastor, and he led me to Christ. So yes, I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was very puzzled. Twice he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in another church in Perth. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder there took him out for a meal. And he asked him how he became a Christian. He said, I grew up in this church through Boys Brigade. Never really made a commitment to Jesus. Just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. I was on business in Sydney. And a little man offered me a religious pamphlet and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home. I told my pastor what had happened, expecting him to sympathize with me. But my pastor agreed with the man. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The same preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention. And he threw in these testimonies. At the close of his session, four pastors came up to him and told him that they'd each been saved during a 35-year period, all through that little man on George Street, giving them a tract and asking them that question. The same pastor then went to a missionary convention. He shared these testimonies. At the close of his session, three missionaries told him that they had each been saved between 15 and 25 years ago through that little man's testimony and question on George Street in Sydney. The same pastor spoke at a convention to over a 1,000 Navy chaplains. The chaplain general took him out for a meal and he asked him how he'd become a Christian. We should have got the answer really by now, shouldn't we? The chaplain replied, I was not living a good life on a US battleship. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific and we docked in Sydney Harbour. We hit King's Cross, I got blind drunk, I got on the wrong bus and ended up in George Street. As I got off the bus, this elderly white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet into my hands and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, the fear of God hit me immediately and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ and I soon became to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains. The same pastor, six months later, spoke at a convention for 5,000 missionaries in northeastern India. The host took him home for a simple meal. And the pastor asked him, how did you as a Hindu come to know Christ? He said, I was working for the Indian diplomatic mission. One bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing last-minute shopping down 
George Street, when this little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town. I sought out the Hindu priest. He told me to go and talk to the missionary to satisfy my curiosity. That day, the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and then began to study for the ministry. After hearing all these testimonies, eight months later, the pastor was actually in Sydney. And he asked a local minister, do you know a little man who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Jenner. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. Two nights later, they went round to his department, apartment to meet him. He made them some tea, and the London preacher told him all of these accounts. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. I was on an Australian warship, and I didn't live a good life. And in a crisis, my colleague led me to Jesus. And I was so grateful to God that I promised I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day as God gave me strength. Sometimes I was ill, but I made up for it at other times. I have done this for over 40 years. And in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street because there were hundreds of people. In 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Goodness knows how many people had been impacted for Christ. Mr. Jenner died two weeks later. You may not have heard about Frank Jenner, but God certainly knew all about him. Now, I'm not saying that his method of witnessing was right or wrong, but by golly, was it faithful and was it blessed? So if we don't have to be famous and charismatic and a wonderful Bible-knowledging person to be a faithful Christian, Frank Jenner certainly probably wasn't. What is it that God actually wants from us? What is it that God actually wants from you and me? I think it can be summed up in the verse that we're going to look at today. It's found in Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We can be amazing, charismatic, intellectual Christians with astounding Bible knowledge. But if our lives do not live up to what we say we believe, it means absolutely nothing at all. Absolutely nothing at all. We need to live what we say. We need to put our money where our mouth is. My old pastor used to say, before you become a Christian, the world has one eye on you. When you become a Christian, the world has two eyes on you. You are watched. Heather mentioned a week or so ago about Jesus hating hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, verse 27, it says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Those are really pretty strong words, aren't they? To be likened to a whitewashed tomb. 
But I'd like to look at the verse in its context. You should never just pull a verse out of somewhere and use it. You should have a look at where it comes from. So I'd like us to read together from Micah 6 at the beginning. We hope it might come up behind me. If not, you can have a look in your, in your Bible. So Micah 6. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent you Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this might sound all a bit complicated for a Sunday morning. You know, you hear the words Micah and you think, oh, minor prophet. Um, but it's actually easier to understand if you break it down into chunks. Basically, this passage is all about God having an argument. And he's having an argument with Israel. And it's written as his evidence is being given in court. And that nature is the star witness. Here you mountain the Lord's accusations. So in verses 1 to 2, God establishes that he has a complaint with Israel. In verses 3 to 5, God sets out his complaint. He has done Israel nothing but good time and time again, but he has been repaid with rejection and rebellion. And in verses 6 to 7, you've got Israel's reply. And quite frankly, it's a bitter and resentful one. Israel lists lots of stuff and basically implies that even if he gave you all of this, it still wouldn't be good enough. Israel is saying, well, what do you want? What do you want? And in verse 8, God replies again, stating he has already told them what he wants and implying it really isn't too much to ask. And that brings us to our verse. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's break it down bit by bit. Now, before we get started, I just want to make things quite clear. This isn't about God wanting us to do things to buy our way into heaven. This isn't about buying our way into heaven. Nothing we do here on earth will ever get us into heaven. Only asking God to forgive us our sins through the fact that Jesus died for us, that gets you there, not doing stuff. No, this is about pleasing God, but in our walk as Christians and how we should be living on a day-to-day -day basis not as famous people, just as every day you and me going to work, catching the bus, doing the shopping, changing the nappies, 
all the run-of-the-mill stuff that sometimes, yeah, it can be quite tedious and quite boring. So what is it? What is the first thing that God wants us to actually do? The verse says, act justly. Act justly. That's a big one because it covers the big things in life as well as the small. As Christians, we have a duty and we must stand up where we see things that are wrong, where you see people treated badly, where we see racism, unfairness in the workplace, and sometimes in church. You know, I often say to my children, just because you are a Christian does not mean that you have to be a mug. If you are treated unfairly or badly, it is okay to stand up for yourself. In fact, God does not want or expect us to be a doormat. Even Jesus walked away from certain situations, you know, that couldn't be reconciled and said, shake the dust off your feet. Sometimes you do have to stand up for yourself. But the caveat to that is that you must do it with dignity, without a loss of temper, without being rude or saying unkind words, and you must do it in a calm and polite way. I'm rubbish at standing up for myself. I'm okay doing it when I've got a persona of being at work or I'm doing it for somebody else. But when it comes to me, I'm really rubbish at it. A few weeks ago, I bought a new car. I'd only done 2,000 miles and I was really chuffed with it. Um, and I had the car about four and a half weeks, something like that. And I did 570 miles in it. 280 of which were going back to the garage for the nine visits that I had because things kept going wrong with it. I took it back nine times. I won't tell you where, just in case it's your favourite garage. Um, I got a little bit miffed at this, it would be fair to say. And on the last time, I went in, I took both sets of keys and the logbook, and I laid it down on the guy's desk, and I said, I'm very sorry, please, can I have my money back? And they gave it to me. And I came out, and I was so pleased with myself. My knees were knocking. It was shocking. But I was just so pleased with myself, because for once in my life, I'd actually stood up for myself. James, I tell you, I was like, whoa, did it? Um, you can do that, and it's okay to do that, but it's how you do it that matters. And it's okay to be just in your private life and about the way people treat you too. Acting justly means being impartial, making fair decisions in our business and in our personal lives, and in church, you know, and in church. James 2 verse 1 talks about this. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Have a, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Do we make subconscious choices based on an unacknowledged prejudice? Let me ask that again. Do we make subconscious choices 
based on an unacknowledged prejudice. I recently saw a post that Mike Pilavacci had put on Facebook just in the last week, and it said this, a person who is nice to you but is not nice to the waiter or the shop assistant is not a nice person. It's true, isn't it? A person who is nice to you but is not nice to the waiter or the shop assistant is not a nice person. Justice requires accuracy. It requires truthful living and refusing to exaggerate, to make myself look better in front of others. It requires adhering to laws, obeying the rules of the land, oh yes, and the road too. And justice requires us to act in a righteous way. The Bible, it provides our moral standard and it defines right and wrong, but the words and the actions, the words and the actions of a person of integrity must align with God's truth. They must do what is right, even when no one is watching, when we don't think anyone can see, even when it takes more time or it costs us more money, you know, cash in hand to keep the taxmen out the loop. Oh, no. Or phoning in sick at work because you really wanted to see that show, but you had no annual leave left. Acting justly requires action, not just talk. Well, I don't know about you, but acting justly is a bit of a challenge all on its own, isn't it? But there's two other things that we need to look at. The second thing our verse tells us is to love mercy. C.H. Spurgeon emphasised what it said in the verse. You shouldn't just show mercy, but you must love to show mercy. You mustn't just show mercy, you must love to show mercy. That's quite a leap, isn't it? In the Old Testament, one of the loveliest stories of mercy that came to my mind was when Joseph finally had his brothers standing before him and he chose to forgive them. They had beaten him, they'd thrown him into a pit, they'd sold him into slavery, and as a result of their jealousy, all of it as a result of their jealousy, but when push came to shove and he had the authority as one of the most powerful men in Egypt to exact revenge on them, what did he do? He chose mercy and he loved to do so. Mercy costs. Mercy costs. But we are required to show mercy and forgive just as Christ forgave us. Mercy can cost us comfort and time and it can cost us money or status. It means facing insults without retaliating, forgiving for the umpteenth time. Mercy means graciously bearing the consequences of somebody else's sins. Mercy means reaching out to the lonely, the neglected, the unlovely, or the addicted, and expecting absolutely nothing back in return. And the last thing that the verse says the Lord requires of us to do is to walk humbly. I was thinking about an example of humble walking, and I thought, well, the most obvious example of humbleness I can think of is Jesus himself. Jesus was the Son of God. He was used to being ministered to by angels and worshipped in heaven. He could command the wind and the waves. 
He could overcome death at a word and heal mortal illnesses in the glimpse of an eye. He was there at the beginning of time and the creation of the world. Jesus exists and existed outside of space and time, and yet he came to earth and was born in a room that he shared with cows and donkeys that smelt of poo and wee, that was probably cold and draughty, that had animals eating and sleeping next to him, had a bed that had splinters in it made of hard wood, had bits of straw still in it, and he was wrapped up in some torn-up strips of cloth. He grew up in a humble house, and as an adult, he was laughed at and scorned, and then killed in a horrific way for crimes he had not committed. I call that humility. That's humility. And obedience on a level we will never truly understand, I don't think. But God doesn't expect us to do all of that. But he does expect us and ask us to be humble. Not too much to ask, really, compared with that, is it? So as we conclude today, and I ask the band to come up, I want to leave you with some challenges, some real challenges. Go away and think on them. I want you to question yourself, your attitudes, and your heart. Are you walking justly? Are you walking justly? Are you standing up for truth and justice in your own life and for those that are oppressed or marginalised? Are you standing up for yourself when you need to? And how do you do this? Do you love to show mercy? Do you love to show mercy? Do you hold a grudge or are you quick to forgive? Do you show love back when others hurt you? Are you humble? Do you always insist on your own way? Or do you let it slip just how much you've done for God or given to his cause financially? You know, just drop it into the conversation. There is the old expression, isn't there, which is normally applied to words that we speak, but I think we can be applied here too, as we seek to live a just, merciful and humble life following Jesus. Think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? I found the verse that we looked at today incredibly inspiring, but also very challenging. As I was looking at it for this talk, how often I feel I've failed in each area and how often I've looked at others and thought that they've succeeded and got this being a Christian lark really nailed. But just like Frank Jenner, who just carried on faithfully, not doing anything glamorous, and for the best part of his life did not see the results of what he did, we must remain faithful too. It's reported he kept a card in his pocket, quoting Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all this. I can do all this. I can act justly. I can love to show mercy. I can walk humbly through him who gives me strength. And that's the same for us. What God says to each of us is start the day anew, put him first and trust him and remember these words. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Amen.